couple words of introduction, and then we'll get into the topic more specifically. But uh, intertextuality deals with the reality that whenever we read any text, there's always uh, a text or various texts that we have read before that are immediately brought to mind, and therefore these texts begin to collide within our mind. And I think we have a very good example of that uh, in what I'm going to be presenting, and also what you already heard yesterday as preceding texts, uh, specifically some of the things said by Dr. Okamoto and Dr. Seleska. And I'll uh, kind of allude to some of those along the way, but let me point out a couple right in advance. First of all, uh, Dr. Okamoto uh, made a point that I would have to say, of course, is rather obvious, but sometimes the obvious points are the ones that are most often missed. And that is that God is the primary user of Scripture, was one of his points yesterday. And that means, well, we are not the primary users of Scripture. As the readers of Scripture, we are, it is God who is to be working upon us rather than us working upon the text, if you will. Now, that's actually a pretty good thing for us to keep in mind as we approach intertextuality because it reminds us that readers are not the ones in the end who are to be in control of the text. And we'll talk more about that here in a second. The other thing from Dr. Seleska, he pointed out in a very similar fashion that the reader is not to be the means by which we figure out the intention or meaning of the text. And he likened that to playing basketball with absolutely no rules where simply those playing the basketball game uh, figure out along the way what they want the rules to be and therefore uh, you just kind of have chaos going on. You could say the same thing when it comes to intertextuality. If you put the reader in complete control, there's no rules guiding what's going on with the text and therefore you end up with, well, chaos. And that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. All right. When it comes to intertextuality, uh, the way that it is typically used within biblical studies and also within the literary field is that it's seen as a reader-driven discipline. Uh, it is an apparent reality for many of us, and if you had a chance when you came in, there are handouts out at the back. Uh, I will be quoting from various authors along the way to kind of illustrate the point, and you'll find these uh, there on the chairs right as you came in. If you missed one, you might want to pick one up uh, so you don't have to try to transcribe everything I'm saying with these quotations. But uh, this is a very apparent reality to us from our own experience that when we read a text, there are preceding texts that come up in our mind. Or as one individual has put it, the deja lu of other texts interferes constantly. So I've heard this before somewhere, and then I begin to try to figure out my mind, well, where have I heard this thing before? And I start making connections in my mind between the text that's before me and some preceding text. And it's that preceding text, because it's in the back of my mind, begins to inform or color how I'm going to read the text that's set before me. I don't think any of us can deny that reality, that uh, as we come across certain things, I know I've heard this before, and that will influence how I read the text. Um, now, if we're going to appreciate the challenges found in intertextuality, we need to go back to their theoretical origins with Julia Kristeva, who has very noted Marxist interests. And you'll find this on the handout that you picked up, where intertextuality is defined in a uh, Sumea article, uh, which gives a glossary, including a definition for intertextuality, which is set before you. It is a term coined by Julia Kristeva, 
to refer to the systematic relationships and processes that govern the dynamic affiliation of texts with one another. Shaped by psychoanalytic and Marxist interests, Kristeva's intertextuality is a cultural phenomenon in which literature and other signifying systems are engaged. Texts within a given culture are, often unconsciously, read in light of one another. They intersect to form a mosaic in an ongoing process of absorption, transformation, and permutation of one another. Kristeva's social semiotic orientation, shared by Barthes, uh, contrasts with a restrictive literary view of intertextuality that concentrates on the influence of one text or narrator upon another. That is what you find with both Bloom and Hartman. Now, a few words of explanation. You can already see at the tail end of that definition that there is something of uh, competing understandings of how intertextuality should take place. You have Kristeva's kind of original uh, design where it is marked by Marxist interest, meaning you empower the reader to do with the text what the reader wants to do with the text. So if the reader says, I think this text really goes well with this other text, the reader has full power, in Marxist terms, to go and put those two texts together and come up with whatever meaning results from that. The rival understanding of intertextuality is this restrictive literary view that says, no, the reader really shouldn't have full-born uh, power to do whatever they want, but rather you ought to be looking at what does the text itself suggest is a preceding intertext that it ought to be read with, all right? Uh, it's noteworthy for Julia Kristeva that she is really a literary theorist. Uh, really, she came out with intertextuality in 1969, was kind of the birth of it within as a literary theory. It was in literary theory for a while. It's been brought into biblical studies. And uh, along the way, there has been some challenges as far as how we're going to understand it. All right? The uh, key in Julia Kristeva's Marxist approach is that we could say that ideology trumps the text. And you'll find that with various quotations I offer, once again, on your handouts from individuals who say basically that very thing. So, for example, the first uh, quotation, right under implication of such a con conception of intertextuality, we read, on this view, meaning can no longer be thought of as an objective relation between text and extra-textual reality, but instead it arises from the subjective or ideological juxtaposing of text with text, and here's the key, on behalf of specific readers in specific historical material situations in order to produce new constellations of texts, readers, and readings. Intertextual readings, in turn, cannot finally be justified except in terms of the reader's interests or desires to find or give meaning and the impossibility of doing this in any other way. What this suggests is that in every interpretive method, no matter how rational, systematic, and scientific, is an important way the expression of desire and of broader sociocultural interests. Well, we can kind of simplify that simply to say that when you approach intertextuality from the point of view of a Marxist point of view or Kristeva's methodology, you once again put the reader in charge, and all readings are done on behalf of the reader. 
so that the reader is reading this for the purpose of what am I going to be able to do with the text so that the reader becomes the master of the text and uses the text for their own purposes to arrive at whatever conclusion they are looking to. Uh, the next quotation there gives us a similar, uh, a similar result. But what determines which intertextual relationships are legitimate and which are not, and what determines how rightly to negotiate those relationships once they are established, I suggest that the answer to these questions is the reader's ideology, biblical interpretation as production of meaning. So in other words, there's no meaning there prior to the reader producing that meaning by how they choose to read the text and what they want to link it with. So once again, you are putting the reader in complete authority over the text. And then finally, one more quotation. Intertextuality is not an innocent or objective enterprise. It is fraught with the ideology of the reader-writer or reader-editor. So as you see, uh, as far as what I have up for the projection, the big implication in the end is that ideology trumps the text. It is the ideology of the reader that has the final say. So if the ideology of the reader is in contrast with the text, well, then you just change uh, really the focus of the text. So you could see why this has become very popular in certain segments of biblical studies because it allows um, oh, what you might call um, subjective readings to be empowered to be very subjective or those who want to say that there is a hidden agenda behind the biblical text that needs to be undone and a new agenda set forth, well, intertextuality, upon Kristeva's view, allows that to happen. Or, to put it in the terms that we're using within the symposium this week, the text is a mere formality. Because all that really matters is my ideology. And I can use the text... However, I choose to link it up with another text to get the message that I want. The text is a mere formality for me to get to the end that I want. All right. Now, I think for the most part, those of us gathered here would have grave problems with such an approach to, to the text. Because it just turns the text into my tool rather than me having a, uh, a respect for the text, if you will. But we're not really alone. There are voices of concern. You'll find this on the back side of the handout. There are voices of concern uh, regarding this very thing. And some of them come from within literary scholarship itself. It's not just biblical scholars who have raised concerns, but literary scholars as well. One of them is a gentleman by the name of Udo J. Uh, Udo J. Habel. He writes, The verification of a textual element as intertextually related illusion is the prerequisite for actualizing an evocative potential that is independent from the interpreter's individual disposition. In other words, he says, that sounds very fancy, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, long story short, what uh, Mr. Habel is saying, that if I really want to uh, give, uh, if I want to verify that what I'm doing is actually correct, I have to justify it on a textual basis. That it can't just be my own idea coming forth, but I have to find evidence within the text that these two texts actually belong together. Or, to put it more specifically, although Hebel doesn't get into this very much, 
but I do get into my dissertation, so when it's published, you'll want to go out and buy it. That's a joke, all right. Uh, if one of the things you have to pay attention to is, uh, of course, which text is written later in time. So if you have a text that is written in, let's say, the 8th century B.C., and it, you have another text that was written maybe in the 10th century B.C., you'd obviously need to be saying, well, it would be the 8th century B.C. text that alludes back to the 10th century B.C. text, and you need to find textual evidence that lets you know that that actually is happening rather than me thinking, well, it sounds nice to put the two together. All right. Later on, as you see on your sheet, Hable goes on to identify those occasions in which, quote, neither a verifiable referent nor any definite attribute guides the text plays with the reader, that that would be pseudo-intertextuality. Once again, to put it into a more simple form, Hable points out, if you cannot give any textual evidence that text A is purposefully alluding to text B, then you have pseudo-intertextuality. You need textual evidence to really give you justification for linking the two texts together. It's not enough just to do it as a reader, because I like to put the two together. You need textual evidence, all right? One other individual that we could bring in here is Mikhail Bakhtin. Now, those of you who are interested in biblical studies, Bakhtin has been given a great deal of, in, of attention in biblical studies in recent years. Uh, Mikhail Bakhtin was something of the forefather of Julia Kristeva. She uses him a great deal. He was a Russian literary theorist in the uh, early 20th century, and a big part of his literary theory was about dial, uh, dialogue, how there is a dialogue between the reader and the text, uh, between, uh, between texts as well, between the reader and the writer of another text, etc., and uh, so Julia Kristeva leans on him a whole lot. And there's one particular statement that Bakhtin makes that is particularly informative for us. Bakhtin says, words live in other people's mouths. Now that's very helpful because notice he doesn't say that words live in other people's ears because that would put accent upon the reader or the hearer so that the meaning of the word is found where, well, the other person is hearing it. No, he says, words live in other people's mouths. So that where is the meaning found? Where does intention come from? It comes from the author, from the speaker, because that is where the word lives. They were the one who spoke it. All right? Uh, there's also concern within biblical studies. You know, I, uh, I might blind them with the glare coming off my head. But. Uh, within biblical scholarship, there are uh, some challenges also to the reader-oriented or reader-focused understanding of intertextuality. Some of them are not surprising, such as Brevard Childs. Uh, you're probably familiar with Childs uh, being most known for uh, canonical criticism. And so he makes the statement, when Steins's theory of intertextuality eliminates the privileged status of the canonical context and removes all hermeneutical value from any form of authorial intent, an interpretive style emerges that runs directly contrary to the function of an authoritative canon. 
which continues to serve a confessing community of faith and practice. So on the basis of what canonical criticism is all about, we shouldn't be surprised to find out that Brevard Childs does not like the reader-oriented approach, has concerns with it, because he would say there is authority within the canonical text, and therefore that must be given uh, attention. We might also note this is another good opportunity for us to remember some of the things pointed out by Dr. Seleska yesterday. Um, within the quotation from Brevard Childs, he talks about authorial intent being a key for the text. Well, that was one of the things that Dr. Seleska was positing as well, as far as the author's intent is where you find meaning. Intention is meaning. An even greater voice, though, from biblical scholarship regarding a concern about a reader-driven understanding of intertextuality is Richard Schultz. And he's gone a long way to even develop a, uh, a methodology for how to properly do intertextuality. He states, focusing on verbal parallels that offer a more extensive textual basis for positing an intentional interrelationship is a more viable approach to the ties that bind. So he talks about the ties that bind different texts together. And he says, of course, what has been running rampant within biblical studies is binding texts together by ties of simply the reader's interests. The reader sees these two texts go together, and so that's all that binds them together. He says, well, that's not really a viable means to do it. The only viable means to do it is look for, well, he calls them verbal parallels, shorthand for textual elements that actually bind the two texts together. All right? So there's a lot of uh, concern within both literary scholarship as well as biblical scholarship. Don't just let the reader run rampant with the text. Let the text itself establish the rules by which things are happening. Now, I would suggest uh, it would be healthy for us to balance the two out a little bit. We want to balance the text with the reader because there is no denying that I, as a reader, when I approach a text, I do come with my own presuppositions. I do come with my own uh, text that I've read in the past that will influence how I read a text today. So I want to keep in mind my own activity as a reader, but at the same time, let the text have the final authority on these things. And so this is really what uh, I'm going to be suggesting to you today, that, uh, that this is how to best handle intertextuality. Let the text establish the connections and then recognize that I, as a reader, am still influenced by my own presuppositions and such. To that end, I first of all lean upon Michael Fishbane. He has been described by at least one other commentator as uh, the key individual for intertextual theory. Now, Michael Fishbane, as he developed his understanding of intertextuality, he did so by looking at how within uh, Jewish writings uh, from... Uh, oh, the rabbis and others, rabbinic literature, how they were intertextual writings themselves. And then that becomes uh, an expansion into understanding biblical intertextuality as well. One individual, uh, Richard Hayes, when he summarizes Fishbane, he states, 
the force of Fishbane's work is to suggest within Israel as a reading community, all significant speech is scriptural or scripturally oriented speech. So that simply saying that everything is grounded within scriptural text. Therefore, we can see that two factors are really emerging even from Fishbane's conception there. First of all, there is the text, specifically scripture itself, that has ultimate authority within intertextuality. But then we also realize that the reader is part of a reading community. And this is where Fishbane is talking about Israel as a reading community. Once again, here you can think about Dr. Seleska's presentation yesterday. I didn't know he's going to say these things. I'm glad to see we have some uh, resonance between our respective presentations. But he talked about the importance of recognizing that we are a family, a reading community. Uh, you could say that both there's a Christian reading community. More specific than that, we are part of, uh, most of us, a Lutheran reading community that we come with certain presuppositions and understandings to the text. All right? Those are the two factors that come into play, and I put them in that order for a very clear reason. It is the text that needs to be given the first say, and then once the text has had an opportunity to really establish connections, then the reading community can begin to mine that connection, if you will. So there's two questions for our consideration. The first one is, how does the text, namely, in our case, scripture, prompt an intertextual reading? A little more explanation is helpful here. Intertextuality is specifically dealing with the issue of how texts relate to each other without specific quotation from one text to another. Now, it's very easy to make a connection between two texts when one quotes directly from the other. Then, obviously, a relationship is found. But what, what about those occasions where there is no direct quotation? That's where intertextuality comes in to say, well, how do these two relate? So if I am reading text A and it makes me think about text B, I have to start asking myself, well, how does the text prompt that? Is it just myself prompting it, or is it the text itself that is prompting it? Because if it's just me prompting it, I have no real leg to stand on. I want some textual foundation for linking text A and text B together. Then, once that happened, I can ask, well, which intertextual readings resonate within a reading community and why? All right? So... I might find that the text allows me to link two texts together, but why does one of those links most resonate with me, or why does one of those links most resonate within my reading community? Why is that? So that I can understand, uh, really, it helps uh, expose the presuppositions by which I'm approaching the text to kind of keep me honest in the process, if you will. Now, allow me to offer... Uh, a Lutheran, even pastoral application of this. And this is where I think we can talk for a little while. I know uh, we've got still quite a bit of time left in this uh, period. And that would be um, to go back to something that we all know. Scripture interprets Scripture, but what is the textual basis for Scripture A to be to interpret Scripture B? This is the classic challenge for Lutheran 
theologians, Lutheran pastors, Lutheran laity. Scripture interprets scripture, but which one am I going to allow to interpret the other? So, can I just bring two texts together simply because they're both in the canon of scripture? Or do I need something a bit more textually based than that in order to bring two texts together? The other question we need to ask is, is the text driving the reading community, or is the reading community driving the text? All right? And this is one thing that I think, well, I know as a Lutheran pastor that I most certainly need to ask myself, because how often on a Sunday, well, in preparation for a Sunday, getting ready for a sermon, do I look at a text and I just immediately jump to certain conclusions as far as here's what it must be about because I know as a Lutheran these things are true, rather than letting the text actually tell me, is that really what it's all about or is it really about something else, all right? So, or another way to put this is, as Lutherans, we believe what we believe because we are convinced on the basis of Holy Scripture that certain things are true. But just because I believe in the, uh, Lord, the presence of Christ, his bodily presence in the supper, does that mean that this particular text is actually dealing with that issue, or am I just reading that in because of my own presuppositions uh, so that I'm putting two texts together that really don't belong together? Those are the two big questions that have to drive us. Now, let me give you a few specific examples. I'll give you, first of all, a what I would say is a negative example where I have to arrive at the conclusion that you can't put these texts together on their own textual basis. Therefore, I can't really go that direction. Then I'll give you an example where you can put them together on a textual basis. The first example, this is one that has always been in the back of my mind, but I've never been able to substantiate it on a textual basis, so I've had to just drop it. And that is, you go to Genesis chapter 1, and when the Lord creates Adam and Eve, creates humanity, he blesses them saying, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. All right? The Lord's first blessing upon creation. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, for whatever reason, I've always wanted to link that with Matthew 28, the text that we often refer to as the Great Commission. When he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. All right? Now, in my mind, I have wanted to link these two texts together because they both deal with the issue of the Lord wanting a people for himself. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I want a people for myself to love and who will love me in return. Make disciples of all nations because I want a people for myself, all these people out here. Now, I can... By way of uh, making a, an interpretive move on both of those texts, I can link them together to say they're both about the Lord wanting a people for himself. Well, who's really making the connection? The reader. I'm making the connection. The connection is not found on the basis of the text itself, and that is why I cannot really uh, run with that connection. I like it but the text does not really authorize it. An example, on the other hand, where the text does authorize it happens to be what, uh, well, what you see here today is kind of the methodological background for my dissertation, and I then apply this within the dissertation to a connection that has been suggested by a few scholars uh, but never really uh, explored in full, and that is how the book of Jonah 
makes use of material from the Noah narrative. All right. Now, there are no explicit quotations in the book of Jonah from Genesis 6 through 9, where we have the narrative of the flood and the rest of Noah's activities. So, upon what basis can the two be linked together? There's actually textual basis for it. One of them would be a recognition that they are the only two narratives in the entirety of the Old Testament where the setting of the narrative is actually on the water. So you have Noah, who he and his family are in the ark, and the ark is literally in and on the water. You have Jonah in chapter 1, who along with the Tarshish-bound sailors are in a boat that's on the water. And in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 2, he ends up in the water itself being thrown overboard. All right? They're the only two narratives that have action actually taking place on the water. Now, you can think of other biblical narratives that uh, deal with action near water, such as the people of Israel coming up out of Egypt, going through the sea. Also, Joshua leading the people of Israel into the promised land through the Jordan. But in both of those narratives, the text is very clear that when the Lord parts the waters, they walk through on dry ground. It's very clear. They are kept apart from the waters. So it really makes uh, the Noah narrative and Jonah very unique in that regard. There's even a more kind of uh, captivating reason to link the two texts together. And that would be, we of course know that Noah, his generations go forth from his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Furthermore, we find out in the text of Genesis that Ham, Shem, and Japheth are either blessed or cursed by their father in Genesis chapter 9. All right, Ham and his offspring are basically cursed, Canaan specifically, uh, because of uh, Ham's poor decision. And then Japheth is also, uh, is then blessed by Noah, and you have Shem, who receives the greatest blessing. Now, you go to the book of Jonah, and you have three primary characters, really, in the book of Jonah. You have Jonah himself, that's one character. You have the sailors who really operate as a unit. They're never named, none of them are ever named, not even the captain of the ship is named, just referred to basically as the captain of the ship because the sailors act as a cohesive whole. And then you have the Ninevites as the third character. And once again, while you have reference to the king of Nineveh, he is never named because he's really operating as a head of the people. So three characters, Jonah, the Tarshish-bound sailors, and the Ninevites. Now, three characters there, guess from whom they happen to descend? The three sons of Noah. You have Jonah, who is a descendant of Shem. In fact, he identifies himself in Jonah chapter 1 as a Hebrew. And if you go to Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, what do you find there? But that you find uh, Ebri is the third generation coming from Shem. All right. Then you also have the Tarshish-bound sailors back in Jonah chapter 1. Guess what? If you go to Genesis 10 and you look at the table of nations, in the third generation issuing from Japheth, you find out you have the establishment of Tarshish. All right. And then when you have uh, the Ninevites... 
If you go to Genesis chapter 10, you find out that the third generation coming from Ham includes Nimrod, mighty hunter before the Lord. And among the things that Nimrod does is he establishes the city of Nineveh. So this is the only time in the entirety of the Old Testament that these three lines from Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, then find themselves being the primary characters in a narrative by virtue of Jonah, the Tarshish-bound sailors, and the Ninevites. There's another textual connection between them. Then that connection becomes even all the more strong by how you see how they operate within the text. When, uh, when Noah blesses his three sons, he blesses Shem by saying that he would be in relationship with Yahweh, the very specific identity of God by his personal name. Well, you go to Jonah, and how does Jonah identify himself? Not only as a Hebrew, but as a Hebrew who fears Yahweh. So in other words, his relationship to the divine is in line with how Noah had blessed his forefather Shem. You find the exact same thing with the other characters in Jonah. When Noah blesses Japheth, he says that Elohim, God, will bless him. All right? So he doesn't put him in specific relationship with Yahweh, but with Elohim. So when you find the Tarshish-bound sailors who then descend from Japheth, and they are dealing with the big storm on the sea, what do they do? They all cry out to their own God, their own Elohim, just in line with the blessing that had come to their forefather Japheth from Noah. And then you have the exact same thing with the Ninevites, because when God curses their forefather, Ham, via Cain, uh, you find out that he makes absolutely no reference to the divine. And when you have the initial introduction of the Ninevites, in, especially in Jonah chapter 3, there is no mention made of their relationship to the divine at all. So, in other words, not only do you have this as a unique situation in which the three lines from Noah are the three characters within the text, but even how they operate in relationship to the, the divine flows from how they are spoken of in the Noah narrative, specifically Genesis chapter 9. Now, there's a positive example of where you're letting the text itself establish its own relationship with a preceding text. The reader isn't doing it, but rather the textual data itself is doing it. And this is precisely, therefore, what I'm arguing ought to be done by Lutheran pastors, Lutheran laity, Lutheran theologians, that we cannot simply bring texts together because we like them together, but rather because the text itself calls for us to do that. Otherwise, I'm not really reading the text, I'm reading my own presuppositions.